electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome. And here's what's coming up on The Exchange. We're more than halfway through. That's how far along the market is in the bottoming process. According to one portfolio manager, after yesterday's selling into the close, he'll give us the names to buy in what he calls the challenging road ahead. Plus, a trust story. Boeing's orders and deliveries out ahead of its earnings later this month. Sales continue to outpace cancellations, but manufacturing quality problems still plague one of its flagship models. Can Boeing regain its previous footing with both investors and the public? And analysts saying, buy this, not that, in a number of industries today, including gambling, pharma, and tech. We'll put their calls to the test in a special head-to-head edition of Rapid Fire. But we do begin with the markets. It's been a... Like four different stories in the past hour, Don. And four different stories that haven't really tugged one way or the other for the markets overall, Kelly. What we've seen is marginal gains, marginal losses for the markets overall. We're hovering closer to the lows of the session. At the highs, we were up about 13 points on the S&P, down 11 at the lows, a fairly tight trading range. We're down six right now, 43.54 the last trade there. The Nasdaq Composite just about flat, down one-tenth of one percent. And the Dow Industrials, similar percentage moves. Very much a calm market today. One place in particular that's not very calm, though, shooting to the upside over the last few days here, has been solar-related stocks. Many of those names have been hot in the trade over the last couple of days. The Invesco Solar ETF is kind of off of its session highs right now, but still up about 5% right now. It's been a pretty decent move higher. Higher oil prices have made many alternative energy products more attractive, so to speak. But as you can see here, over the last year, even with rising oil prices, that hasn't played out. So maybe there's a catch-up trade there, or maybe there's a bit of momentum that could wane out of this solar trade. And then one other place to watch a down component, shares of Apple right now. You can see here just about moving to the downside by about two-thirds of 1%. The company comes out and discloses it will have a new event on October 18th, Kelly, October 18th, where it's expected by some analysts and industry watchers that Apple could introduce new models of its iMacs or MacBooks, that sort of thing, computers and AirPods as well. So another event, Apple shares, they've been an underperformer on a year-to-date basis, only up 7%. That's less than half of what the S&P's done so far. Back over And that's just about a week away. I know we all talked about AirPods uh, into that event and didn't get them. Dom, thank you very much. We appreciate it for now, our Dom Chu. As markets head for another up-and-down day, investors are continuing to ask themselves whether we've hit a bottom in this recent sell-off. Manexka says no. It's a challenging environment, and we're only in about the sixth or seventh inning. Joining me now is Robert Pavlik. He's Senior Portfolio Manager at Dakota Wealth Management. Robert, it's good to have you. That's kind of good news or bad news, uh, depending on how you look at it. It's better than being in the first inning, I guess. Uh, Explain how you would sort of analyze the present situation. So I I think to put it in terms everybody can understand is I think, you know, stock prices run up to where they become expensive, just like any other asset class. And then they eventually go on sale until sort of inventory matches up with demand. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. Sure, there's a lot of issues, inflation, concerns about the supply chain, tapering, the Fed raising interest rates. Um, 
But eventually these things will pass. The supply chain is probably the easiest thing to probably get resolved. And I, I think we're just in the middle of repricing this right now. But the good thing about it is I think we're a little bit further along than just halfway. So if you want to take anything positive out of all this, it's it's going to create an opportunity to, to step in and to buy quality stocks for really what I think is going to be a, a pretty decent, OK, you know, future moving forward. So in other words, you think this is a repricing because of concerns, but don't markets usually climb walls of worry? Why are we descending this one? I I think you could probably say that we were climbing a wall of worry throughout the summer. All these concerns were really well known. And yet we made, what, seven new highs in August, followed by 11 new highs in uh, in August and seven new highs in July. So talk about a, a wall of worry. I think that's what exactly what was going on. And then this started this started to get repriced really just as soon as Labor Day. And we started really entering into September. So let's pick up with some of your uh, stock picks, which we've shown here, Merck, Chevron, and Ulta. Are these names that you think will do well in a kind of sideways to lower environment? Or are these names people should, you know, kind of, I mean, they're, they're all a little bit different stories. Chevron itself, you know, you could see it having more near-term upside, but I do wonder about the long run. So I have a price target on, on Chevron about 139. That's about a 31% upside. And what you're seeing now is oil trading around $80 a barrel. And so once you start to think $80 a barrel, people start to think 90. I mean, Kramer was talking about it this morning. And if you start to think 90, you're probably thinking 100. And so, you know, this supply chain issue with oil and natural gas is probably going to run a bit bit longer. And so you could probably see oil trading up to 100, maybe 115. And so that, I think, takes, you know, Chevron going forward. What I think you really want to do is focus on quality and sort of low volatility. Chevron's really low volatility when you compare it to some of the EMP companies. And then Merck. Merck has a game-changing drug. Uh, Scott Gottlieb was on the TV yesterday, and he was telling you how important this drug is going forward. And so I have a price target on Merck of about 99. So 99 is 24% upside from the current, uh, current level. The stock has sold off from the initial pop. This is giving you an opportunity to get in to a quality company, a low volatility company with a with a fantastic drug going forward. My last pick is really just sort of, you know, maybe uh, swinging for a, a triple or even more than that, maybe a, a possible home run, Ulta. So this is the kind of company that has pricing power. Com- people that go to Ulta are dedicated, loyal shoppers there. So they're going to pay up. They also... Um, are, are more in demand than just other staples. And so on Ulta, I have a 485, which is probably another 25% from the current level. So Ulta, I think, provides you with that growth opportunity, yeah. with that loyal customer base, with that pricing power. Well, I'll let our viewers draw some analogies to, you know, the Dodgers Giants series or, or one of the others as, uh, as you talk about all these baseball analogies. Merck, Chevron, Ulta, and uh, sixth or seventh inning of the sell-off. Uh, there's the recap. Robert Pavlik, thanks for joining me today. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks a lot. We just got some news out of the bond market. It's reopened today after yesterday's holiday with yields to the upside. Ten-year note auction, top of the hour. Rick Santelli, how'd it go? Well, it didn't go nearly as aggressive as I thought. I thought it would be an A+, plus, but a B-plus isn't bad, Kelly. Uh, they really jumped at this, and it makes sense. You know, we had a very big run once we settled above that 137 to 139 zone. We moved all the way up to the 1.6, almost without a setback. And, of course, the weak numbers on Friday 
gave pause and investors jumped all over it. Let's go through the internals. The auction yield 1.584, pretty spot on to where it was trading. But all the metrics, whether it was bid cover indirects, directs, uh, all were very solid. Dealers take 11.2%. Now, it isn't the smallest amount, but it's very close to maybe the fourth smallest amount in the last 10 years. So very solid. You don't want dealers taking it. You want investors cleaning the table. And I think that what this really tells me is, is that after two weak labor reports and touching 1.6, there's going to be some significant resistance on the yields at the 1.61 to 1.66 level. So watching investors step in with basically a four-week concession of yields moving higher, I think makes perfect sense. And there's the 10-year now, 158 in the wake of all of that. Rick, thank you so much. Our Rick Santelli tracking the 10-year out in Chicago today. Well, it was good news and bad news for Boeing as well. On the upside today, its orders outpaced cancellations for the eighth consecutive month. On the downside, deliveries of its Dreamliner remain halted as planes undergo quality checks. And that seems to be the crux of the investor battle on whether to invest in the stock or not. As Jim Cramer says, he remains faithful to Boeing, but the company needs to show a level of leadership it has lost. And while the stock is up in the past year, it's underperforming the market and is still 20% off its 52-week high. So what will it take for this name to catch up? Shia Kyalu follows Boeing for Jeffrey. She still has a buy on the stock with a $300 price target. Sheila, where are you? Um, hey, Kelly, thank you so much. I'm actually at AUSA. It's the Army trade show, and I'm standing behind uh, the Textron manufactured B280, uh, which is a big Army competition coming up in the spring of 2022. It's an $80 billion program, so it's one of... Uh, the Army's top priorities uh, for its future assault aircraft. I, you know, I thought it was more than just a work from home, you know, background or something. Uh, <laughs> very, very cool. So tell me, maybe what would be the catalyst for Boeing stock to break out from here? I, would it be Dreamliner news or is it more COVID related? What do you think? Sure. I think really Boeing is has several catalysts from here. The first is the mess, uh, total air traffic is 37% below 2019 levels. You don't see that in a lot of end markets. Second, the max. Uh, you know, we're seeing the max cadence of deliveries improve to something like 14 a month to 18 a month, headed to 33 a month next year. Those, those are improving. Uh, China is a big catalyst to get it going. China is 20% of the backlog in deliveries for Boeing on the 737 max. And third, you hit the nail on the target, Kelly. The 787, the Dreamliner, is halted. Uh, it hasn't really delivered any since May. Um, and that is really holding back the stock right now because we basically cut our delivery forecast from 14, seven, uh, from 57, 87s delivered to 14 uh, because of the current uh, delivery halt and the issues the Dreamliner is seeing. Um, but you're right. Actually, it hasn't resulted in cancellations just yet. We actually only saw 1787 canceled this month. Um, and Boeing actually has 302 net orders ahead of Airbus at 133 year to date. So the numbers in that sense are, are moving in the right direction. What about reputationally, especially as we, the stock seems to have, you know, time and again, every couple of months, something new. And I, I can't tell whether we're it's almost like when there's car fires with a Tesla and everybody, you know, freaks out. But then the, we always hear, well, there's a car fire with a regular car that every 10 seconds it's not reported on. You know, are these manufacturing issues for Boeing, you think, more um, problematic to the stock, kind of like when Chipotle had that raft of food poisoning, uh, because they are just emblematic of a nervous market or because they reveal that maybe the Boeing design process is more flawed than people had thought? 
Um, I think it's the Max is, was grounded and has basically received uh, re-entry into service in over 175 do- denominations with one, oh, 195 total. The 787 is not grounded. So that's an important distinction. Uh, it, it's Boeing and the FAA deciding to do some rework on the fuselage that's holding back the delivery. So I think there's just increased scrutiny. And that's why overall in both aerospace and in defense uh, with this development program behind me, there's just a lot of scrutiny when it comes to aircraft programs. It takes years and years of development. And I think that's the focus on the 787. Um, you know, I think if if the MAX had not existed, the 787 issue would not be as magnified. Well, I take your point, your bullishness on Boeing, even though you are standing in front of that Textron. It, it's like a drone, right? I mean, it, but I don't know. That looks like a driver. It's thing. actually a tilt rotor. It's a tilt rotor helicopter. It's a uh, used for attack. Um, basically, the Army aviator hasn't upgraded its fleet since the 1970s. So every 40, 50 years, the Army gets a new helicopter. And it's the Textron V-280 is competing against the Lockheed Boeing uh, Defiant for the competition. Fascinating. It's fun to get a little glimpse there. Sheila, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank Shia Kayalu joining us from Jeffries today. Coming up, Bitcoin touching its highest level since May, up 16% since crossing back above 50000 last week. Is the crypto becoming a more stable asset? And what's the future of regulation for the so-called stable coins? We'll explore with a key player. Plus, we'll speak exclusively with the CEO of Quest Diagnostics about the future of COVID testing, their new state-of-the-art testing lab, and the impact of vaccine mandates on corporate testing. Stay with us on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. Today, pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've got a news alert on Coinbase. Very busy lately. Uh, shares are down about 3%. The company has made a major announcement about NFTs. Kate Rooney is here with the details. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Coinbase is launching its own platform for NFTs. In a blog post, the crypto company says Coinbase NFTs, as they're calling it, will be a marketplace for minting, buying, and discovering NFTs. It plans to add social features as well and talks about making The buying process easier to start. Coinbase says it's supporting Ethereum-based standards and it'll add other blockchains down the road, but it's not live yet. They're starting with a wait list. And NFTs, that's short for non-fungible tokens, have really taken off this year. They're essentially digital collectibles. The Coinbase announcement 
is the latest move by the company to differentiate in a pretty uh, crowded crypto trading field. Competition is heating up lately with Robinhood, Square, SoFi, and some others. It's another way for the company to diversify revenue as well. And it adds competitive pressure to the biggest NFT marketplace out there, OpenSea, which is still a private company right now. And the move comes amid more regulatory scrutiny as well for the industry. Coinbase saw that firsthand last month when the SEC threatened to sue the company over its proposed crypto lending program. And Kelly, today Coinbase is seeing some delays on its platforms as well with transfers, buys, sells, deposits, withdrawals, and some trades. So we're keeping an eye on that. Back to you. Any explanation from the company as to what's causing that, Kate? And what would they bring to the table in the NFT space that these other marketplaces don't already offer? Yeah, no commentary from Coinbase. We reached out to the company. They sent us sort of the update that says there's degraded performance on some of those. So we're keeping an eye on it for full uh, when it comes back on online. But it seems to be affecting some transfers in and out of banks. Uh, as far as Coinbase in the NFT realm, they talk about making it easier. They have scale for one. So this company is really seen as a first mover in a lot of ways in crypto. Meanwhile, they're really uh, kind of a, the last mover here in the NFT market. Uh, there's a lot of players out there already. They can bring scale. They've got millions and millions of customers. So it's probably easier for someone to open up an NFT marketplace account when they already have a Coinbase account. They've got the scale. They also talk about user experience. So that's something they've got um, the just the uh, scale to add a really great app and user experience where competing with the likes of Coinbase for one of these um, NFT startups is likely going to be harder. They talk about social network. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what this actually looks like. But they say it's not, la- not launching quite yet, starting there with a wait list. So we'll have to see what it looks like. Yeah, that's always the way to build excitement and drama. Uh, Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Kate Rooney. As the crypto world expands, the government is cracking down. The Biden administration pushing for more regulation of cryptocurrencies, especially stable coins. Those are pegged to assets like the U.S. dollar. They're supposed to be literally stable. But Yale School of Management professor Gary Gordon recently said, on Power Lunch, this can provide a false sense of security. We don't know what they really hold backing these coins, and there seems to be two views on that. Some people are skeptical, and some people just believe what they say. So uh, I think it's time to, to look into this carefully now rather than wait for the, uh, another financial crisis. Joining me now is Jeremy Allaire. He is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of digital currency company Circle, which launched the stablecoin USD coin with Coinbase. Jeremy, welcome. And, you know, when you guys launched, obviously, the market share of Tether was still pretty much the entire market. Where are we today? Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible evolution. If you look at, you know, early 2020, pre-pandemic, USDC was a fairly small percentage of the market, about 400 million in circulation, growing 10x in 2020, probably growing more than 10x this year. We're now at 33 billion USDC in circulation and approaching 50% of the size of Tether. And so we've seen really dramatic growth. And we've seen that growth not just in the amount that's in circulation, but you know, now, uh, you know, well over a trillion dollars in transaction volume happening on blockchains using this form of dollar digital currency. So have they, I remember the Wall Street Journal reporting on this over the past week or so, but have they gone ahead and said that they're likely to regulate stable coins as banks? Well, so um, there's this process going on with the president's working group on stable coins. That includes Chairman Powell, Secretary Yellen, Chair Gensler, uh, and other uh, you know key financial regulatory agencies and their staff. 
And really, they have been looking at, you know, as dollar stablecoins grow to be much larger in scale, what's the right regulatory framework for those? And so we've always believed that when things like USDC got to be very, very large, that it made sense that those sit under some federal supervision, uh, you know, banking and payment system-like supervision. That seems to be the consensus around the world. And and that is, uh, to some degree, what, what the Wall Street Journal was reporting yeah. Uh, is likely to come out of this. So, and you guys have been releasing monthly attestation reports to try and be more transparent about it, what is backing um, USD coin versus something like Tether, which is, there's been a lot more rampant speculation about what is or isn't backing Tether. I guess my question is, could you go a step further and be even more transparent about your holdings precisely because there's such a level of mistrust and confusion within the crypto community? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, when, when we introduced um, USDC three years ago, um, you know, first of all, it was done under a, uh, a government regulatory framework, the same regulatory framework that applies to all the money that you hold with PayPal or with Stripe or Square or other leading payments companies, which is the money transmission laws. And so we're examined by government, uh, governments uh, and, and state banking supervisors all the time by global public accounting firms. So there is actually, you know, consumer protection laws that we have to follow. And, and that includes um, ensuring that one for one, uh, you know, redeemability of a electronic dollar, as it were, in, in our platform. So that's always been the case. But we went a step further and sort of said, let's let's have self-attestation, let's provide more transparency. And clearly the anxiety that's existed around something like Tether has increased. The, the demand for that. So we've started to provide a lot more transparency, really breaking down, you know, cash, cash equivalents, short duration U.S. Treasuries, exactly what's what's there yeah. um, and, and responding to the market very much as well. And ultimately, right, this gets to a place where when you've got hundreds of billions of dollars in these forms as a new kind of payment system, um, they're going to have to be uh, transparency and disclosure standards that are set up through regulation as well. Yeah, no, it, it is very analogous. Uh, sort of the way that people use stable coins is kind of a holding uh, place for their money when they're tra- they, they don't want to have to on and off ramp from these platforms all the time. I, I totally understand the need for that. Maybe you throw in a little bit of yield as well. And there's a gazillion different kinds of of these things available, which maybe speaks to why regulators would like to kind of clarify uh what's okay and what's not okay. I think the final question I just wanted to ask you is more of a philosophical one from the crypto point of view, and it's about the idea that Bitcoin itself is hard money that cannot be affected by rampant credit growth. And um, I just wonder if stablecoins have allowed for some of that credit growth that is making Bitcoin more resemble the financial system it was supposed to replace than one that is truly, quote unquote, hard money. Well, I I think a a lot of crypto economic systems, whether they be core um, currencies like Bitcoin or even stable coins like a USDC, are trying to build on models of, of more sound forms of money. And I think some of that is, um, you know, in the monetary uh, sort of design of something like Bitcoin. I think in, in systems like USDC, we're very much a proponent of full reserve banking, uh, a model where the, the entirety of the what would be effectively deposits are held in full reserve as opposed to lent out in a fractional reserve model. And I think there's significant and positive arguments to make that it's possible to build a more efficient, more resilient, more fair, more inclusive 
and more secure financial system yeah. on more sound money principles. If everybody withdrew their USD coin tonight, would they get uh, the dollar for it? They would. I mean, uh, the design of this is obviously to provide that exact form of redeemability. Um, we have a track record, obviously, of supporting an enormous volume of redemptions. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the in, in the tens of billions of dollars of redemption value. And I think that's really key when you're dealing with a, a fundamental payment system. Jeremy, thanks for your time today uh, for perspective on all of this. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Jeremy Allaire is the Circle co-founder, chairman and CEO. And still ahead, a teacher shortage is hitting classrooms across the country as COVID created the perfect storm for burnouts and early retirements. We'll continue our special look into the lost workers of America when we continue. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Quick check on the market shows the Dow down 40 points right now. Pretty even declines across all three major averages. We're looking at declines about a tenth of one percent. Here are some of the movers this hour. Dow Components, Amgen and Verizon are sliding to their lowest levels since early 2020. So we're talking now about almost two year lows. Uh, Verizon, for its part, is down one point seven percent. Meanwhile, AT&T, we were just talking about sinking to the lowest level since July of 2010. So a two percent decline today. You really have to put that into context. It's near an 11 year low. Both Wells Fargo and Barclays are slashing their price target on AT&T in the past few days. The stock had only eight positive days in September and not a single gain of more than 1%. Meanwhile, Alibaba got a temporary midday bump on a Reuters report that founder Jack Ma was spotted in Hong Kong today. There you can see it turning positive earlier. We're now down just under 1%. Remember, he's been largely out of view since the China crackdown started late last year. You could argue he kicked it off and shares are down 30% this year. Now it's time for a CNBC News update. Over to Rahel Solomon. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The FDA staff has taken no position on the need for Moderna COVID booster shot, saying that two doses are enough to prevent severe disease and death. The FDA staff also didn't take a position on Pfizer booster shots, although they were later approved. The day after Columbus Day, Vice President Kamala Harris telling Native Americans that the U.S. must address the damage done by European explorers to Native communities. Those explorers ushered in a wave of devastation for tribal nations, perpetrating violence, stealing land, and spreading disease. We must not shy away from this shameful past. And in Orlando, a driver caught the moment when a crane collapsed at a construction site next to a highway here. So one person was hospitalized. After being hit by debris, two others were treated at the scene. And on the news tonight, what really happened to Gabby Petito? Full coverage of the autopsy report that's due out later this afternoon. Tune in tonight at 7 Eastern.
Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Coming up, DraftKings versus Penn National, Texas Instruments versus Analog Devices, and Facebook versus Netflix. We'll tell you which names the street is buying in today's head-to-head edition of Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for a special edition of Rapid Fire. On deck today are a handful of street calls pitting stocks head-to-head against each other. Here to help break it all down for us, our own Dom Chu joins Laffer Tangler Investment CEO Nancy Tangler and Destination Wealth Management CEO Michael Yoshikami. Uh, welcome, everybody. All right, let's start. With, this one really is an eye-catcher when DraftKings gets a sell. Roth Capital initiating coverage of the online gaming space today. They're betting on shares of Penn National as a buy, Dom. They are folding on DraftKings as a sell while they're bullish on gaming overall. They don't think DraftKings' outsized market share is sustainable, nor do they think they can hang on to its advantage in the daily fantasy sports business. Penn National shares are down 14% this year, Dom, while DraftKings is up about 5%. All right, so if you look on that chart that you just showed, they track pretty closely. At least they have for the better part of the kind of year-to-date period over the last year. What you do want to see is whether or not there's any kind of a reversion back to those same trends. What's interesting to me is in in trading today, despite that call, you still have both of those stocks higher. There's a general sentiment overall for online gaming, iGaming, you know, online poker, online blackjack, online sports betting. That's that franchise is one where you could see, yes, more upside, a total addressable market that seems to grow and brings everybody up along with it. The other names that I guess maybe would be interesting here to look at besides Penn and them is Rush Street Interactive. That's a name that a lot of people don't talk about but does power a lot of the online gaming platforms for state-sanctioned and state kind of platforms for online gaming. So that's Play Sugar House, that's BetRivers.com, those names. So an interesting call, but, you know, obviously it's hard to pick a side when you're taking a look at these names because I think a lot of people that do it are trying to play for the whole industry to go bigger. Guys, I think Dom's been doing his channel checks uh, in this space. (laughs) Michael, over to you. You know, I do like the idea of buying the picks and shovels for the gold rush, so to speak, which is that last name that Dom mentioned. Yeah, well, um, yeah, that, that has some merit. I think, you know, it, when you look at these kind of calls, when you look at a sell and you look at a buy, what's really the catalyst for the buy? And I think, um, you know, obviously the uh, uh, picking analyst is not here. But if you look at what's going on with Penn, they just got recent regulatory approval in Canada to expand their business model. That's probably what the catalyst is. Both of these stocks are kind of floating along. The overall industry, as Dom said, is going to continue to go up. Uh, but I think Penn is probably getting the push because of the Canadian uh, regulation. I'm a little skeptical that DraftKings is going to have the problems that um, the analysts are talking about. But again, I agree. Both of these um, names, this entire space is going to okay. get bigger and bigger. Nancy, I'll give you the final word on this. And I will mention the analyst we had on about a month ago uh, to kind of kick off football season said his concern with Penn was that it had been underperforming despite the brand's popularity, Barstool and all of that with uh, Gen Z and the younger groups. And that it was hard to unseat DraftKings and FanDuel for user rated experience. In other words, the apps just work very well. Yeah, I think that's a valid point. I also think underperformance is a, is a reason this stock is somewhat interesting here. I mean, we've been looking at it for a long time, but okay. as someone who learned to read uh, on the racing forum, pouring over it with my dad at horse races, <laughs> I actually like the broad-based nature of Penn's business and the fact that they have a tremendous cross-sell opportunity. So I think if you're looking for a new name, this is an interesting one to pick away at because it's going to benefit from the overall market, um, total addressable market growth. But also maybe not at the same level as some other names, but I think it's a safe name, strong earnings, decent, multiple. 
All right, so some votes here for Penn for the whole space, and I'm less worried about teaching my kids to read now. (laughs) You can learn that way. Uh, Next, Evercore ISI is swapping Facebook for Netflix as one of its top mega cap picks. The firm saying Facebook is still attractive despite a 13% sell-off on the whistleblower stuff, citing how it's rallied off previous scandals like Cambridge Analytica back in 2018. But Evercore says it's time to step aside after Netflix's recent rally. The shares are up 16% in the past three months, despite reporting a subscriber slowdown in Q2. Michael, Facebook versus Netflix, which would you? Uh, well, this is a valuation call, obviously. The call's being made that Netflix has already had a huge run and Facebook is really under pressure right now. It's hard to buy stocks, even if they have um, uh, tailwinds. It's hard to buy stocks that really have this kind of momentum forward and are at this high price. So I think Facebook is the better valuation stock right now. All right, Nancy. Yeah, you know, I'm a reluctant shareholder. I think uh, the management team is is smug, at best cynical, um, the, but the business model is hard to argue with. The BLM boycott resulted in them growing advertisers. And although they've seen some recent slowdown, I just don't I just don't see how this business model gets upended. So, um, you know, bad governance. Not great management team, but a great business model. Interesting. So two votes for Facebook, Dom. What would you add here? I would add that when you look at Netflix, over the course of the market volatility that we've seen in a lot of mega cap comms companies and tech companies, Facebook has been a relative outperformer, a real standout, hitting record highs despite the fact things have sold off. So I wonder from a story standpoint, you know, because we're reporters, right, Kelly, we like to talk about narratives and stories. Mm -hmm. Which one is driving Netflix these days? Is it still kind of like that pandemic effect there? Will people kind of stay on there? Is it Squid Game because programming is such a juggernaut at Netflix? Or is there just a general sense that Netflix might be immune sentiment-wise to some of the downturn in other parts of the market? Those are all things I'd like to see answers for. It could be a great story or a great movie down the line for Netflix. Yeah, or maybe a great stock uh, in that case. All right, a quick programming note. Mark Mahaney, the Evercore ISI analyst behind that Facebook call, will be on closing bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern time, so he'll elaborate more on that. And we'll move along. Morgan Stanley seeing limited upside in the pharma space ahead of Q3 earnings. They're cautiously bullish on Pfizer and Merck, upping the price target by about $3 for each one, mostly on COVID vaccine and treatment sales. And they're lowering their Bristol-Myers target, citing failure in a key trial drug, Pfizer and Mark in the green this year. It's a rougher slog for Bristol, uh, Nancy, which is down 7%. Yeah, I think healthcare is fraught here, Kelly. I, I, um, we, we lowered our exposure to the traditional pharmas. Happily, we exited Am- Amgen uh, a while back. And uh, we've been redeploying to, to the extent that we've added to healthcare in CVS, Stryker, Medtronic. I, I, think, I think pharmaceuticals are a place that you want to sort of stay on the sideline. And the price inc- increases that they... Um, put forward were just 10%. So I think there's better places to be in this market. And Michael, as you know, Nancy mentioned Amgen there as well as a, a tough one. We just said that's at its lowest level since early 2020. So even as a number of people have been coming on air and talking about how healthcare is a place to be for stagflation or for different reasons, it's undervalued, it's under, we talked about the biotechs have been a pretty rough trade this year. Um, why is it been a struggle to gain traction? And do you think that Pfizer and Merck then kind of are the, the obvious candidates for outperformance? Uh, well, there's a lot of questions there, Kelly. Um, so, <laughs> let me see. Uh, so I think Pfizer and Merck, I think, are uh, – I'm. we're not on the sidelines regarding pharmaceuticals. We think pharmaceuticals with the new RNA uh, uh, platform in terms of vaccine development is going to be a growth area, and you're getting a great dividend. Uh, that's something you didn't mention, but I think that's a big reason why you buy these pharmas. Uh, I do, as was just said, like the medical device sort of names, uh, and then just tr- sort of traditional – 
pharma that are not really cutting edge, not really vaccine development, I'm a little more cautious on. All right, Dom, we could have told two stories about healthcare this year. And the one is that, you know, the race to respond to COVID highlights, you know, the attractiveness of the whole asset class. And the other is that it sucks up all the oxygen in the room. And so far, the latter seems to be playing. Out. I mean, that's the that's the whole idea behind pharma, right? I mean, we, we, we haven't really talked about any of the companies out there who've made kind of breakthrough drug designations there for, for some of their drugs, approvals on the FDA front for some of the smaller mid-cap biotechs, because the entire narrative has almost been driven exclusively by covid i'm not sure how long that la- in fact i hope it doesn't last right because from a from a, of a from a human race standpoint i think that that covid hopefully gets in the rearview mirror at some point yeah. but but i think it's interesting because the one thing that i thought about in this pharma story and it might just be this whole east bay connection that michael yoshikami and i have i kept thinking about the dividend when i think of large cap pharma i think of dividends pre-covid i just thought of dividends and that might be one of those things that a lot of investors are keying on Although I'm not sure if interest rates keep going higher, how much more those dividends become more attractive. But if they don't, or if it's a slow climb, they still look pretty good from here. (laughs) All right, before we leave, let's talk about this last call. City isn't ready to bail on the chip wreck just yet. It's maintaining buy ratings on two key names, but shuffling their rankings. They're dropping Texas Instruments down its list on third quarter, weak third quarter guidance, and moving up analog devices, citing margin upside driven by the recent merger with rival wreck Maxim integrated products, she said. Both of these names, TI and Analog, are seeing nice gains this year. Trailing the market, though, they're up about 10% apiece. Nancy, you know, whether it's these two names in in particular, uh, sort of others in this space, what would you do here? Well, we like the chip space. We're we're long, we're overweight, uh, and in semiconductor uh, equipment. But I love Texas Instruments as a company. And, you know, at the margin, ADI might outperform in the near term, but you've got a fabulous management team at Texas Instruments who's experienced the capital allocation plan. To Michael's point about dividends, is fantastic. This is a 2.5% yielder with 18% five-year or 22% annual uh, annualized five-year growth. And they're in the space that has the strongest demand. Autos and industrial demand is the strongest um, uh, in total, and that's 24% of total addressable market for semi. So I like it. I, I don't agree with the call. I, I like the whole space. We own Broadcom. We own um, Lamb Research, and we own, I uh, can't even remember the, the last name, but we're, we're <laughs> overweight. Oh, Broadcom, did I say Broadcom? Yeah. Broadcom. And what's interesting to me about that, Dom, is we've spoken with Stacey Rasgun and Bernstein about he's concerned about overshipment and autos and notebooks in some parts of the semiconductor space. But look at the market. It's not, you know, it's still very much acting like the shortage uh, and long-term structural demand uh, story is on. I, I, I remember because I was with you for that interview with right, Stacey, right. and we were sitting right. on set next to each other over there. I, I, okay, so when it comes to chips, the reason why people look at Texas Instruments so much in that kind of a situation is because Texas Instruments really is the bellwether for almost the entire chip and maybe even technology sectors because their chips go into just about everything, right? Washing machines, maybe even cruise missiles, that sort of thing. But when it comes to these types of chips, there's, there's a kind of delineation that's happening right now between those analog chips and memory chips versus some of the other specialty devices, right? Other maybe graphics-oriented chips, other things like that. So there's a big focus, at least from a lot of the traders that I talked to, Kelly, on names like NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Devices, and others on that end of the spectrum. So that could be something, too, where it's not just about ADI versus TXN, so to speak, but it could be other others out there. And, and even some of the biggest players mm-hmm. like NVIDIA, because let's face it, it's, it's the biggest one out there these right. days. Right, and that's where all the demand is. Michael, last word. Uh, and if you think about... Um, 
what in your house requires a chip and what in your house will require more and more chips, more and more processing power? The answer is virtually everything. And that's why TI, we think, is pretty well positioned because there's going to be tremendous demand from autos, washing machines, not the exciting stuff, not gaming, but the stuff we use every day is going to swallow up chips, and Texas is probably going to deliver those chips. All right, a couple of votes of confidence there. Uh, this was very enjoyable, guys. Thank you all so much today. Dom Chu, Nancy Tangler, and Michael Yoshikami on this face-off edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, we're sticking with the head-to-head theme in semis. Even Jim Cramer is getting in on the action with his latest CNBC Investing Club newsletter. The stock he thinks is one of the best bets next. Welcome back. Let's get to Jim Cramer's edition of Head to Head. He discusses Marvel technology and Broadcom in his latest newsletter, saying Marvel has gone through an incredible transformation under its new CEO and has become a data center, 5G and automotive powerhouse. Broadcom, he says, more of a value stock with strong free cash flow and a healthy dividend yield. And Cramer says Marvell is the best way to gain exposure to valuable end markets. So if you want more of his head to heads and insights, you can read all about his trades in his new newsletter, the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up by heading to CNBC.com slash investing club or pointing your phone's camera at the QR code on your screen there. Still ahead, shares of Quest Diagnostics up about 20% over the past year, but 12% off their 52-week highs. With corporations mandating weekly tests for unvaccinated employees, we're going to speak to the CEO exclusively about what the return to office and rising popularity of at-home testing means for Quest right after this break. Welcome back. Shares of Quest Diagnostics are higher today, but lower about 9% over the past month. Despite hiking full-year guidance in early September, this all comes as companies have been implementing mandatory COVID vaccines or weekly tests like Quest would conduct for employees. Joining us now to discuss all of this in an exclusive interview, our own Meg Terrell is joined with the CEO of Quest Diagnostics, Steve Ruskowski. Meg? Well, Kelly, thanks so much. Steve, thanks for being with us. A big day for Quest. We understand you're opening a brand new facility here in New Jersey, not just for COVID testing, but for all different kinds of tests. But I want to start out by asking you, you know, you raised your guidance to 40,000 COVID tests per day last month for the rest of the year, at least that many. Are you doing about that many or is it going up? What are things looking like right now for COVID testing? Yeah, thanks, Meg, um, for having us. And you know, as we approached this year in 2021, we actually expected our our COVID testing volumes to come down, and it did in the first half. And then what we did see starting in June is actually a resurgence of COVID testing. And so in September, as you said, we did update our, our view on what we expected for COVID in the back half of the year. And we said about 40,000 tests per day in the back half. And actually, in the third quarter, uh, we publish the data uh, frequently. We're doing more than that. But we do expect, as we come out of the third quarter into the fourth quarter, that that will come down some. That it'll come down some. Is that because you're anticipating, as we've been seeing in the data, this sort of delta surge has been uh, peaking and leveling off, and we all hope it keeps going in that direction. But how do you plan for flu season and a potential winter COVID surge, are you anticipating you might see that come back up or still going down? Yeah, we're, we're watching it carefully. Uh, we see the infection rate coming down throughout the country, and that's usually an indication of how much testing volume we'll get for COVID. But as you said, Meg, we are watching carefully what's going to happen with flu and cold season. We do anticipate that when people have symptoms, 
and that could be from the cold or it could be from the flu that we'll have COVID testing as well. And so we'll see uh, what happens in the fall. Um, as you know, last year we had a very mild flu and cold season. And so far it's been mild so far, but we'll see what happens as we get into, uh, get into the fall. And what are you seeing in terms of Quest involvement with back-to-school testing, back-to-work testing? As we start to live with this virus going forward, as some have predicted, it'll become endemic. How much are we going to be used to just being tested on a regular basis in our daily lives? Yeah, Meg, we had an investor day in the spring. And what we said at an investor day is that we believe COVID will continue to be uh, an opportunity for this year to continue to make the contribution we have, but it's not going away anytime soon. We actually see our work moving from what we have described as being clinical COVID work to more return to life clinical work. And some of that is the return to school programs, return to the office programs, and return to leisure programs. And so we are implementing a number of programs related to those activities. And we do see that happening through the remainder of 21 but also to 22. So we will have COVID testing in 22 uh, going forward. And we do believe uh, this will be an ongoing part of our portfolio for a while. All right, Steve Ruskowski, thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll stay in touch as we see these sort of trends continue. We appreciate your time. Thanks, I appreciate it. Have a good day. Uh, Stephen Megar, thanks as well. Coming up, we'll take a look at how COVID impacted the already struggling education sector and what's keeping teachers out of schools. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. There was a shortage of teachers before the pandemic, but now it's even worse with COVID triggering early retirements and just general burnout taking more staff out of schools. Kate Rogers is here with a look at where the teachers are and the efforts to hire them. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, data from the American Federation of Teachers and RAND show nearly one in four teachers said they were likely to leave their jobs by the end of the 2020-2021 school year. That number was one in six pre-pandemic, and nearly 80% reported feeling job-related stress. David Fishkind is one of the teachers we spoke to who retired early in part. He says he was frustrated over his Florida high school's handling of COVID case disclosures and lack of accommodations to teach remotely last year. And I felt for the students. I didn't want the students to be endangered. I didn't want the staff to be endangered. I didn't want my family to be endangered by this pandemic, which by this point, it killed almost half a million people. Now, part of the problem is that employment hasn't kept up with enrollment. Data from the Employment Policy Institute shows that over the last decade, there's a shortfall of nearly 600,000 public education employees needed to serve students, with teachers making up about half of that number, Kelly. Another challenge here, vaccines. Recent AFT data show that two-thirds of K-12 through members do favor a requirement unless employees have a valid medical or religious exemption. More than half, but certainly not a home run there. Back over to you. And how quickly can younger teachers step up, uh, Kate, if they do at all? Yeah, that's right, Kelly. That's another shortfall there. There's not enough, you know, to feed that pipeline. So people are retiring early. Some younger teachers are burning out and then some are just skipping the profession entirely. A huge and ongoing problem for sure. Absolutely. Kate Rogers with the latest there on that aspect of the later force. Kate, thanks. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 